You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. 33 parents caught up in the college admissions cheating scandal chose to plead guilty. The first two parents who chose to have a jury decide their cases were found guilty on all counts, guilty of paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes to get their kids into elite schools as bogus athletic recruits. Acting U.S. Attorney Nathaniel Mendel said no one is above the law. They and their families enjoy privileges and opportunities that most of us can only imagine. Yet they were willing to break the law, and the jury has now found that they did break the law. The prosecutors had introduced powerful evidence, including secretly recorded phone calls between the two men and Rick Singer, the ringleader of the scheme. I can send him your 500000 that you wired into my account to secure the spot for one of your girls. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who covered the trial. So, Pat, how long was the jury out? Well, the jury deliberated just a little over 10 hours over two days, and it was a categorical win for the government. They convicted both of these dads who were accused of paying bribes to get their kids into elite schools, convicted of every single count. There was one question from the jury, and it was a complicated charge encompassing the concept of the parents paid bribe to corrupt people, and by doing this bribing, they robbed the colleges of the honest services of their employees to do their job properly and not give slots to kids whose parents paid bribes. And the judge basically gave the jury a smorgasbord of opportunities to convict them just on that one count alone. The jury found guilty on every single count. Um, It was quite stunning. Um, The defense had argued vociferously that they had not paid bribes. And if they had paid money, they understood them to be, quote unquote, donations to these schools. So they said this corrupt college counselor named William Rick Singer, who had pled guilty and agreed to cooperate against them, he was the con man. 
who had lied to them and misled them about what the true function of the money was going to be. The prosecutors managed to get this verdict even without the testimony of the mastermind. How did that go? Well, what they did is they did play the wiretaps of these parents discussing with Singer their plan. And John Wilson is private equity executive, and he was on tape talking to Singer about possibly arranging to pay $500,000 for each of his two daughters, so a million dollars to facilitate his daughter's entrance into Stanford and Harvard. And then he asked, if he could get a two-for-one deal. So he was haggling for a discount. So he didn't want to pay more than a million. And the government said that was showing his willingness to engage in a dirty deal. And the other dad, Gamal Abdelaziz, and he's a former Wynn Resorts executive, he was on tape talking to Singer. Singer actually was bragging to him that he wanted to use this fake profile that they used to get his daughter into USC as a purported basketball are that he wanted to use it for other fake athletes. And Abdelaziz chuckles and says, I love it. So the government said this is the true understanding these two parents had, that they knowingly understood that Singer was corrupting the process. The judge made some evidentiary rulings that seem like points on appeal. What the government did in this case, and the judge allowed it, is he allowed the prosecutors to put in evidence from other parents including emails. And then they called one of these dads who pled guilty. His name was Bruce Isaacson. He's a Northern California businessman. He and his wife pled guilty to paying bribes to Singer to get their kids into college. This dad testified about his mindset. So the government said, you can infer from the testimony of this other dad what these two dads were thinking. The defense vociferously argued against this. They said it's unfair. Some of the evidence that the defense argued shouldn't have been seen by this jury because it had nothing to do with these defendants. For example, prosecutors showed jurors conversations and emails with other parents like Felicity Huffman or Lori Laughlin and her husband about their kids that had nothing to do with these two defendants' kids. And also wiretaps of other parents talking to Singer, which they said had nothing to do with their crimes. And the judge also limited the evidence that the defendants could bring in to make their case. Right. The defendants wanted to bring in more evidence of what exactly was going on at these schools. And they really went after USC, the University of Southern California. And they had this VIP list, which they showed the jury, which had all these students that were admitted as a similar kind of recruited athlete, or they're called walk-ons. So they're not the actual star athletes that are, you know, national champions, but they are students who get in and they get to be on the team as like a manager or second string, for example. And so these two parents would argue they should be allowed to show this transactional aspect college admissions is about at USC. They argued that USC admitted kids and they had evidence in this this spreadsheet of kids that parents had given donations, including a kid whose parents gave USC $5 million, and the kid got admitted as a quote-unquote walk-on tennis recruit. But the judge rejected their ability to call USC athletic department officials to really inquire and explore this, you know, money talks in the admissions process, and the judge said USC was not on trial. So the only thing they could really bring out was if you're a recruited athlete, 
you have like an 85 to 90 percent chance of admission. Some of these kids actually get admitted when they're sophomores in high school, and they get a promise of admissions, of guaranteed admissions in sophomore year in high school. You did a story that there was a debate within the prosecutor's office about whether to target Singer, the mastermind, or use him to go after the wealthy parents. And usually prosecutors go up the ladder. In this case, they went down the ladder. Yeah, Judge Nancy Gertner, who is a retired federal judge in Boston, and she's a professor at Harvard Law School, and she was saying that this is like using the drug kingpin to have them plead guilty and testify against his clients, the people who buy the drugs for him. This is kind of backwards in the philosophy. Now, there was a quote-unquote raging debate. I spoke to Andrew Welling, who was the Boston U.S. attorney, who led the office when they were putting this case together. And he said they decided that it would make a bigger impression against the corrupt parents. Instead of having a one-off case and just going after Singer, and have him get convicted, and then maybe you might be able to implicate one or two parents. But they decided to go big and make a big, splashy case against all these parents because under their philosophy, if this national scandal got exposed, it may deter other parents from a perp walk or prison jumpsuit. So interesting. Thanks, Pat. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. The two fathers are facing years in prison at sentencing, in contrast to the parents who pled guilty and served only months in prison. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This week, the Biden administration was at the Supreme Court arguing to reinstate the death sentence for Johar Tsarnaev, the man convicted of setting off one of the bombs that killed three people at the 2013 Boston Marathon. That's despite President Biden's opposition to the death penalty. 
The main issue was whether the trial judge should have admitted evidence of a triple murder allegedly committed by Tsarnaev's older brother, Tamerlan, in order to show Tsarnaev was acting under the influence of his brother. The justices were sharply divided down ideological lines. Here are Justices Elena Kagan and Brett Kavanaugh. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane poking somebody in the chest. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane shouting at people. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane assaulting a former student, a, a, a fellow student, all because that showed what kind of person Tamerlane was and what kind of influence he might have had over his brother. And yet this court kept out evidence that Tamerlane led a, a, a crime that, com- that resulted in three murders? And the district court said, we don't know what happened. There's been insufficient evidence of who did what, and therefore the theory that Tamerlan was the lead player in that is entirely un- well, is unreliable because we don't know when Tadashev had all the motive in the world to point the finger at the dead guy. There was even a tense exchange between the two justices. But I just want to make sure the premise, I mean, the premise yes. was assumed away. The premise was assumed away because that's the role of the jury. Well, I think it's important to discuss the district court's reasoning. Joining me to analyze the arguments is John Bloom, a professor at Cornell Law School and director of the Cornell Death Penalty Project. So, John, why did the Court of Appeals throw out Sarnayev's death sentence? The United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit left undisturbed the guilty convictions, but reversed the death sentence on two independent bases. The first was that the judge made a legal error in refusing to either question or allow the lawyers to question the jurors about the content of the pretrial publicity to which they'd been exposed to during the trial. The second basis was that the First Circuit determined that the trial judge should have allowed evidence that Sarnayev's brother previously committed several homicides in Massachusetts, and they wanted to admit that evidence of proof that brother had been previously radicalized and was acting on his radicalized beliefs, and that he's the one who radicalized the Sonarev, and he was the primary planner of the, the crimes. Uh, they wanted to introduce that evidence because it went to basically their theory of the case, was that Sonarev was the least culpable of the two brothers. His brother was sort of planned and recruited and groomed him to participate in. Here, the Biden administration is arguing to reinstate the death sentence when Biden ran on ending the federal death penalty. And in July, the attorney general placed a moratorium on federal executions. Why do you suppose the Biden administration is taking this position? Well, I mean, there is some mystery to it. In theory, you could draw a distinction between saying we're not going to pursue the death penalty going forward or we're not going to allow any executions going forward. But nevertheless, we're not going to try and disturb previous convictions and death sentences which have been imposed. I think some of it is because they didn't actually seek certiorari. It was the Trump administration that asked the government to review the decision of the First Circuit. The Supreme Court had already made that decision when Biden became president. And maybe they just didn't want to withdraw it at the time. But There definitely is uh, some head-scratching going on about some of it. There was only one justice, Amy Coney Barrett, that raised this issue. Mr. Fagan, I'm wondering what the government's endgame is here. So the government has declared a moratorium on executions, but you're here defending his death sentences. And if you win, presumably that means 
that he is relegated to living under threat of a death sentence that the government doesn't plan to carry out? Well, I mean, she's right about that. Technically, that's not legally relevant to the question for the court, but you could ask the same question about, well, why'd they take it? This case wouldn't normally meet the rules for certiorari review. It's not an issue about which the lower courts in either one, about which there was some confusion about. The courts all historically has said, we don't engage in error correction. We don't decide to hear cases just because we think the lower court got it wrong. There's got to be some sort of overarching you know, legal rule at stake that needs clarification or revision. That's not an issue here either. So they clearly granted cert in this case primarily for the purpose, most likely, because the majority of them don't like the result the First Circuit reached. The bulk of the argument concerned the judge's failure to admit the evidence of the triple murder. What were the justices' main concerns? Well, the conservative justices raised some questions about, well, was the evidence reliable? Do we really know what Tamerlan did? The comeback to that is, well, they used the same evidence that Sinara's lawyers wanted to present at trial as basis to convince a judge there was probable cause to conduct a search. So they were saying that the government here said it was reliable in one context, but yet when Sinara wanted to admit it at his trial, they said he couldn't admit it. Some of the more conservative justices said, well, you know, this would turn into a mini trial on what he did, you know, and who did what. I mean, I think that concern was overblown, but nevertheless, it was stated. Some of the liberal justices, like Justice Elena Kagan, were trying to make a case for having that evidence be admitted. Justice Kagan said that it was a classic case for resolution by a jury. Well, I mean, I think her point there was, yeah, okay, so a jury should have been permitted to consider this and come to their own conclusion about whether the defense theory about who radicalized who and who was the primary planner of this was right or wrong, and whether it would make a difference in whether he should be sentenced to death or not. I think the defense point is, well, look, the judge deprived the jury of the opportunity to decide both what the brother did and what was its legal significance in terms of determining the defendant's moral culpability. Why do you think there was so little talk about the second part of the First Circuit's concerns, which is that the judge didn't sufficiently question jurors about their exposure to extensive pretrial publicity? Well, I think primarily because that was the weaker of the two links in the First Circuit's decision. Generally, we give trial judges a lot of discretion on voir dire about publicity to sort of manage the trial. There have been a number of different high-profile trials you know, over the years, and the Supreme Court repeatedly said, look, the trial judge is kind of there. He or she is in the best place to decide sort of what the, what the mood is and what the effect of this is. And normally, you know, the courts, appellate courts, are kind of reluctant to micromanage that. So I think both sides seem to believe that the more difficult question was, should the evidence have been admitted of the, the triple homicide? So does it appear as if there are six votes to reverse the First Circuit and reinstate the death penalty? I mean, if all you were doing was listening to the oral argument, I think that was the only thing you considered. You would say, I think that most likely the Supreme Court's going to reverse. But of course, you know, the Supreme Court is most likely to reverse from the fact that they grant cert. When they grant certiorari, they grant cert to reverse about 80 percent of the time just the pure statistics of it. They see a ruling where they think a lower court got it right. They don't usually decide to hear the case so they can say, uh, okay, First Circuit, we just want you to know we think you're doing a hell of a job there. So just from that, you would know that most likely the government's going to prevail. If you just listen to the oral argument, you would think, okay, the government's pretty good chance they're going to prevail. But, you know, there have been a number of cases where it didn't turn out uh, exactly like people anticipated at oral argument. And this 
you know, potentially could be one of them. It's one thing to sort of ask questions at a bench. It's another to sit down and write an opinion in the case that makes sense and you can square with prior press. So let's say Sarnayev wins at the Supreme Court. What would happen then? Then I think the government would have to decide, are they going to retry him or are they just going to allow him to serve a sentence of life without parole? I mean, I think it's important to bear in mind that his conviction is intact. He's going to be in prison for the rest of his life no matter what. Uh, it's just a question of whether his time in prison is going to end from a natural death or from a death by execution. If the government wins, are there other appeals that Sarnayev could press? Yes, he hasn't been through what we normally would call federal post-conviction review or 2255 proceedings. So there would still need to be additional proceedings to look at the quality of the representation. Was he denied the right to the effective assistance of counsel? Was there any type of prosecutorial misconduct we don't know about and things like that? So uh, even if he loses in this appeal, there still will be uh, multiple years of litigation before there would even be any question of whether the death sentence could be carried out. When you say multiple years, are, are we talking like a decade? On average, yeah, I would say we're talking at least a decade. Cases normally move relatively slowly through post-conviction review. There has to be a new team of lawyers is going to have to be appointed. They're going to have to get up to speed on the case. They're going to have to be given the opportunity to do an investigation to examine what happened, what trial counsel did and didn't do, what the prosecution did and didn't do. So regardless of what happens here, there will be years of litigation left. Are death penalty opponents disappointed that Biden so far has declined to commute federal death row sentences to life in prison? No, I wouldn't read that much into that either. I mean, normally, uh, you know, governors or presidents, when they commute sentences, they sort of do it on the way out of office as opposed to on the way in. When you've seen that at the state level, when there have been like significant numbers of commutations, and there was in Illinois and New Mexico and other states, governors have usually done that near the end of their term. So again, I wouldn't read too much into that either. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor John Bloom, director of the Cornell Death Penalty Project. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to join us weeknights at 10 p.m. Wall Street time for the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.